This episode of Author Stories is brought to you by the Writing Mastery Academy. Founded by Jessica Brody, author of the best-selling plotting guide, Save the Cat Writes a Novel. The Writing Mastery Academy features online, on-demand writing courses, including the official Save the Cat Writes a Novel companion course, novel fast drafting, crafting dynamic characters, and productivity hacks for writers to name just a few, plus monthly live webinars on various writing topics. Go to jessicabrody.com slash hank to learn more and get your first month of unlimited access to all the content for just $6. That's right, just $6. jessicabrody.com slash hank. You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wyatt, Terry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, JT Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Anderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is. Thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm super excited to have Patty Callahan on the show with me today. She has an amazing new book. It's called Surviving Savannah. And uh, if you are a lover of historical fiction, and and we are here at the Garner household, um, this is a book that you must have uh, in your uh, for your 2021 reading. I, I Almost said 2020, and uh, I thought we'd all agreed to just forget that that I think existed. we already got through that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but this is definitely a book that that you need to have. What a great story. Uh, welcome to the show, Patty. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. I'm excited to have you. Uh, Patty, we begin each show with the same question, and that question is, what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? Oh, you know, I think I've been writing stories since I could hold a crayon. So I have been doing it since I could sit down and paste the covers over over my words. I don't remember the first time. I always wanted to be a writer, but I can say that I abandoned that desire. It was a very it was a child it was a childhood desire and I wrote books and I painted the covers and I stapled them together and I gave that up because it didn't many people did in the world. Authors to me were, they were nebulous. I didn't even know who they were. The books were the living things. Authors to me, I never gave much thought to who wrote the books until about my mid thirties. When I decided that I wanted to try to do the thing that had sustained me all of my life, and that was stories. And if I had to choose, I would say it was probably Ann River Siddons who made me want to try and do the same thing. So the um, that desire that, that uh, came back to you. In your 30s, you know, a lot of us feel like uh, that that we have the storytelling gene or, or, you know, however you want to describe that. Um, 
but invariably something happens when you reach adulthood and um, you you get a job and you start raising a family and, you know, all of the the things of life kind of you know crowd out those dreams. But in invariably they come back around. And tell me about that, that awakening you had in your mid thirties, where this thing that had sustained you, like you said, all along now became uh, kind of a nagging desire again. There's a, there's a fantastic book on creativity. I'm sure you've heard of it. You've probably talked about it and that's the artist's way by Julia Cameron. Yes. And don't you love that book? Oh yes, absolutely. It's life changing. And One of the things she talks about in there is the shadow artist, the person who's always kind of around the thing they want to do, but don't want to admit that they want to do. And that was books and stories for me. I was mildly, more than mildly, obsessed with story and mythology and books. And when I was a child, I actually used to get in trouble for reading you know, get your head out of that book and join us here in the real world. And I believed that I needed, and I did, and I'm glad I did, get a degree in something that was useful, that I could get a job when I graduated. And I was a pediatric nurse, and I loved being a pediatric nurse, loved it. It wasn't a means to an end. I I got my master's degree in it and worked as a nurse. But there comes a point where this thing inside of you finally has its say. And for me, it happened when I had three young children and I was at home with them. They were five, three and newborn. And I wasn't in the workforce and I was exhausted and my defenses were down. And I was playing dollhouse with my five-year-old daughter. Essentially, I was trying to stay awake. And I asked her, what do you want to be when you grow up? Thinking, I'm playing dollhouse with her. I'm a stay-at-home mom. She's going to say, a mommy like you, right? And instead, she says, when I grow up, she's very precocious. When I grow up, I want to be a writer of books. And it hit me like a sword, the heart. And I said, that, that's what I want to be when I grow up. And she said, you're already grown up. And I signed up for classes the next day. <laughs> so wow. that was that was kind of my awakening. But it had been there all along. The, you know, you, you talked about um, having a career before becoming a writer and, and not – just depending on that as as a means to an end, because I know exactly what you're what you're talking about. You know, when when we're talking to our kids, even uh, very creative kids, where you, where you realize there's something there that's going to come out one day, um, we encourage them to to find a pursuit that that can can make them happy, but can also help them pay the bills while they're doing uh, you know getting their art off the ground and. And one way to look at that is, well, you're you're teaching your kid to compromise and and to have a backup plan, which, you know, we could argue about that all day, whether that's a good idea or not. Um, but another way to look at that is a writer needs to have uh, life experience to pull from. Uh, you, if you're just a writer and have never experienced life for yourself, have never you know met 
different people and and gotten to interact with people from all sorts of backgrounds and and maybe have have seen some tragedy and and maybe seen some joy and that all of that goes into the writer's uh, toolkit, doesn't it? Oh, you said it exactly right. Better than I've said it in my talks where I say that I think being a nurse is one of the best jobs to have before you decide to sit down and be an author. And there are a lot of women novelists who were nurses beforehand and males who were nurses or doctors beforehand. Um, Elizabeth Berg, Sue Monk Kidd, they were all in the helping professions. And it's entirely true. There's this romantic vision of the writer in a cabin in the woods synthesizing their material into the great American masterpiece. But our work comes from the compost pile, for a better word, of, of our lives. And, you know, being a nurse and being in the daily drama of people's lives, being there, especially as a pediatric nurse, for for these kind of before and after moments when their lives are tipped upside down with a diagnosis or an accident is gives you firsthand a firsthand feel and look and and one of the things i think is really important for novelists and for humans in general is empathy and when you're in the helping fields like a doctor or nurse or social worker or just being in the world as a as a feeling empath- empathetic human, your experiences end up synthesized in your work. And without those experiences, if you're going to lock yourself up and, and just think you're going to write with beautiful prose, you're missing out on the emotional journey of, of the books and the characters themselves. So I... We're on the same page, Hank Garner. <laughs> <laughs> so what was that what was that first story that that mm-hmm. uh, you know kind of awakened in you uh, when when you first started pursuing this? What where did your imagination first go? The first story I wrote actually ended up not being the first story that was published. And now I find that to be a very common story when oh, yeah. <laughs> I go to conferences or hear people talk about, I had this idea and I wrote it and I got an agent and I sold it in an auction and and people were fighting over it. I I always look to the person next to me and go, that's not my story. (laughs) That's Mm. not my story. (laughs) I, you know, I, I had this story I wanted to tell about a young woman who was carrying around a guilt that wasn't hers. And a family and a child. And I think I did everything wrong in that book, but I wrote it and it got me an agent, which is what mattered. But I ended up, we ended up putting it aside and I wrote a different book called Losing the Moon, which was my first published book about two college sweethearts who have lost track of each other and come back together because her son is dating his daughter. And after that, went from there. That was 15 books ago, one Audible original ago, five anthologies ago. It's it's kind of crazy to think about. That is, that is. Um, have you, um, uh, Patty, dis- have, have you found a, a thread 
that goes through all of the works that you've published that uh, that you can point to and say this is a Patty Callahan book. What what, what is the the thing that that makes a book uniquely yours? Oh wow, I. I don't know <laughs> because, because I, I know you've you've published in a in a variety of genres, um, mm-hmm. and, and you know genre can can be um, a difficult thing for writers sometimes because we we have such varied interest and you know life is a is a varied thing. It's you know we don't we don't live in one genre, um, so you know, publishing can be kind of a weird thing. And I, I know that you need genres. Because people need to know where in the bookstore to go to find the thing that they're looking for. I understand that. But as a creative person, sometimes the genres can feel a little stifling. So, um, you know, where do you you think that you fit? That's so true. And it's it's also what's caused me a little angst, you know, because I wrote, I think it was eight books that were considered contemporary Southern fiction. And I love those books. And then a story came to me that I wanted to write. And it's called it's a book called Becoming Mrs. Lewis. And it is about the improbable love story of C.S. Lewis and his wife, Joy Davidman. And I didn't think about it as a genre change. And yet it was because it was considered historical. And then when I finished writing it and was out talking about it, I realized that I'd found my mojo, if that's a technical writer's term, and that historical fiction was what I loved and wanted to do. And when I was a nurse, I was a research nurse, and I love that rabbit hole. I love finding the one thing that changes everything. I love finding not the story you've heard over and over and you think you know, but the untold and hidden part of the story that gives you an entirely new view of the story. And so, yes, I ran fast and hard down the historical fiction road. And if there's a a thread that runs through them, it's that I am very interested, um, obsessed might be a better word, endlessly fascinated with the untold part of things. And I also am endlessly fascinated about the transformation of people from one kind of person to another. So I think if there's a thread, I'd I'd love to ask my readers what they think the thread is. It's a very (laughs) interesting subject. But I think it's my endless fascination with people's transformation, how they go through hardship, or through trials or through happy things from one kind of person to another one completely. And I think all of my novels, the main character completely transforms by the end of the book through the things I put them through. Are you looking for software that helps you bring your novel to life? Novelize is a web-based writing app, which allows you to access your work on any device with a browser and an internet connection right from your desktop, laptop, tablet, or smartphone. Just get the novel written. Say goodbye to sticky notes. With our notebook on the side, you can keep track of all the important information you need to write your novel. We keep distractions to a minimum. 
help you track your progress, and encourage you to write more novels. You can even use the same notebook for your novels in a series. Outline, write, or organize your novel by switching between modes. You can write your outline notes while you're writing, and you can move scenes and chapters around anytime in the organize mode. Choose between the dark and light theme to help prevent eye strain so that you can stay immersed in your book. Novelize, the app for writers by writers. Authors, I have a fantastic new service to tell you about. It's called PubSite. PubSite is a service to help you build your very own website, your home on the web, where you can promote your work and give your fans a place to connect with you. PubSite is a website platform that allows every author, regardless of budget, to have a great-looking professional website developed by the book marketing professionals at FSB Associates. PubSite is the new easy-to-use DIY website builder developed specifically for books and authors. Whether you're an author of one book or 20 or a small publisher, PubSite allows you to build, design, and most importantly, update your website pain-free. No need to be dependent on a designer or webmaster to make a small but costly change to your website. Save the money and do it yourself. PubSite is the best platform for authors because it's a book-centric platform. PubSite was built just for authors and small publishers. Every design, feature, and layout is book-centric. They have customized designs for you to use. It's easy to build. No coding or HTML is necessary to create a stunning, professional-looking website with all the features you want. Get a custom domain name, yourname.com. It's simple to update. You can add all of your books, add a blog and a book tour, sell from any retailer, manage your email list and social media, and even do e-commerce. Build your website with a 14-day free trial, then pay just $19.99 per month, which includes hosting. And we offer packages starting at $499 to set up the website for you. Pub-Site.com, the place to help authors find their home on the web. The, uh, you, you mentioned um, Southern stories and Southern literature and, uh, and, and how you embraced uh, that, that genre, uh, especially in your, your earlier works. And Surviving Savannah is absolutely a, uh, a Southern story. It's, it's oh, historical fiction yeah. 100%, but, but it's, it is a product of, of someone who knows the South, um, obviously. What is it about Southern literature that, you know, we, we don't necessarily talk very much about Midwestern literature or upper <laughs> Northwest yeah. literature. What, what, it, what is it that makes a book Southern literature and, and what do you think that evokes? It is the kind of story that made me want to be a writer. You asked me that at the front end and I mentioned Anne Rivers Siddons. And her stories, Pat Conroy's stories, those Southern stories were the ones that made me say, I am going to finally try to do this. So whatever that sensibility is, that can be very unnamed. It, it, it's, it's a nebulous feeling that's hard to pin down. But for me, it has something to do with melancholy. It has to do with the extreme importance of place. We often talk about place as a as a character in the book. Right. I talk about place as the petri dish from which the story grows. And 
you couldn't take that story out of that Petri dish and put it somewhere else or wouldn't grow into the story that it is. The setting so important. Southern fiction has has this nimbus around it of, of secrecy, family stories, how pa- important the past is. It's this big mix of, of unnamed nebulous words that, that make Southern fiction hold itself together as its own genre. And I think, too, I come at it a bit differently than some of the Southern fiction novelists, if you can lump us together, in that I did not grow up in the South. I grew up in Philadelphia, right outside Philadelphia. I moved to the South when I was 12 or 13, but I moved to South Florida, which we all know is in the South, but isn't necessarily Southern. Right. Yeah. So it wasn't until I went to college in Alabama, Auburn University, that I started to understand this, this sensibility, you might call it. It, It's funny because we have a joke in the South that the farther South you go in Florida, the more North you get. Oh, I love that. It's so true. I love that. So funny. Um, so so tell me about the the story of of surviving uh, Savannah because um your your publisher you you guys put together a great little video where you tell the the story some of the background of it and uh, and I'll link it in the show notes of that uh, of this episode to so people can can watch that and and get some some interesting insight into that um but there was uh there was this boat um this this cruise liner almost. Um, it, it was an interesting concept. I'll, I'll let you um, tell the folks what it is, but it, it all begins with this boat. Um, what, what was the purpose of it and how did you find out about it? The steamship Pulaski was, it has now earned itself a new nickname, which is the Titanic of the South. But it was this luxury steamship, the finest there was in 1838. When you think about 1838, what you have to remember is that it was in between, it was right before the Civil War. So after the American Revolution, but before the Civil War, when the South was in its heyday for good and for bad, it was in its heyday, it was growing, it was keeping up with New York, and yet there was this abomination of slavery at the same time. And steam had just started to come up as the new revolutionary way trains, steamships. And this ship was supposed to take once a week, the elite of Savannah and Charleston north for the summer. Because if you could get out of Savannah and Charleston for the summer, you did. No air conditioning, biting insects, blazing heat, sweltering summer days. And so these, the aristocrats and the elite of Savannah and Charleston would board the steamship Pulaski and sail north for the summer, it made the same route once a week. And this week was only its fourth journey. And the ship's brag was only one night at sea. But we all know that one night can change everything. And off the coast of North Carolina, it exploded. And I follow the passengers, a very, very particular passengers, two women, on that ship to show you what happened. I was 
approximately three weeks into my research, I had decided, I hadn't decided if I wanted to write about the ship, but I had decided I wanted to at least look into it because it was Savannah, which is, we have a place down in Bluffton near Savannah. My daughter went to Savannah College of Art and Design. I love the city. I love the low country. And I was just doing my research when I found out three weeks into my research that an, a shipwreck hunting company had found the remains of the Pulaski at the bottom of the ocean off the coast of North Carolina. And I knew that I had to write this story while they were bringing up the lost treasure and artifacts. I wanted to bring up the lost stories of the families and passengers. So I focus on one very particular family who joined, who went on the ship together. There were, it was a father, his wife, his six children, his niece, and his sister. And then there's a modern day element to the story because of the shipwreck hunting crew who I worked with the entire novel. There is a museum historian and curator who is helping make an exhibit out of the artifacts that are being brought from the ocean. So these two stories braid together to this overarching theme that appeared, which is how do we survive the surviving? What do we do during the time we're trying to survive? And then what does that mean for us even after? So many stories stop with the survival. And I wanted to talk about what happens or write about what happens when, how do we choose to live our lives even after that? So those stories are all braided together. You said so many stories end after the the survival, and you're absolutely right. Everyone loves a great uh, story of overcoming, but what happens w- after that? And when you're left with the aftermath, and and what that does to you that that is a a fantastic exploration and um. And and it's interesting to see a story of where um, because you know as Americans especially we we love a um, a an overcoming story or someone that makes a comeback, uh, but sometimes sometimes people don't behave the way that we wish they would, and and this is a a, a fantastic exploration of that. Um, what did the, the writing the dual timelines? Uh, what did that offer you uh, as a writer? So, so you you're writing historical fiction. It, it would be one one thing to get into the story and just transport us completely back to the past, but having this element of a a, a right now story um, to where we can kind of go back and forth. Um, what did that offer you as as a writer? The ability to go back and forth in time. When I discovered that they had found the ship, I knew that the modern day story was just as important as the story of the past. Not only because we would be able to see the remnants and the artifacts of of the passengers we meet, but also because I wanted to look at the complicated history in Savannah that the past and the present and the future have together the mythology of Savannah versus the truth of it, the idea that because these people survived, that they did good in their lives. There's this mythology we all have and and need to have because it makes us feel better. But 
we have this that when somebody survives something terrible and somebody else doesn't because that not all 11 of those family members survived that those people were meant to survive that they were meant to live we love the meant to be and we live in that and we need it and yet I discovered that one of the children who survived this horrific explosion and floated five days and five nights at sea, 20 years later, had become a horror of a man. He was a slave trader. He had earned himself the name the Red Devil. And it brought into stark contrast and light for me this idea of fate and destiny and meant to be and how that related to our present day lives. And so I wanted to hold the present up against the past and let them mirror each other so that we don't leave behind the hard parts of the stories of the South and of Savannah and of that wreck in particular, that we don't leave behind the hard parts so that we can mythologize it and feel better about things. And I wanted to hold those up against each other. And by telling only the historical part, we lose the flavor of what it means when the tragedy is over. What happens after we persevere? What happens after we survive? Do we thrive or do we just live? Or do we actually swing the pendulum all the way the other way and do harm? And I couldn't do that without having the modern day storyline be part of it. Patty, as you started uh, learning more about the true story of of this ship and the people that uh, were uh, were on it and 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 that surrounded uh, all of this, um, did did the story just start unfolding to you? Uh, you know, there there's there's a part of writing historical fiction where you're gathering true facts, historical things that we can all point to, but at some point it your imagination takes over and you get to fill in the blanks that we that we don't exactly know um what what was it you the more you learned about this did did this time period and these people just come alive to you oh absolutely in the beginning it was very muddy and murky this this was a it's hard not to use ship analogies the water was churned up and muddy and murky <laughs> but um there was something this was much more difficult than I had anticipated, to be honest. And it's because I am not an 1800s scholar. <laughs> there was much of that time period in that life that I didn't know about. And to understand your character, to be able to write about them with this propulsive action forward, you have to understand what they really, really desire what their life is like, what do they want? What do they really want? And it took me a while to come to that because I needed to understand a woman's life in 1838 South. And I didn't, but there is a, there is loads, there are loads of journals and letters and I read those, but there is one very specific accounting of that night by the woman who is actually the main character in my novel. Her real name is Rebecca Lamar. In my novel, her name is Augusta Longstreet. And her journal, her accounting of her life and that night, she left for us. 
in this tight handwritten script, she left us an accounting of that night. And the more I read it, and the more that I learned the cadence of her language, the more I read other accounts of, of early 1800s life, I was able to finally bring the story to life by listening, not audibly, I'm not insane, but listening <laughs> to those women through their writings, and then the story could come alive. It, it's so easy, Patty, to, to look at the past and, and then to look at yourself and say, uh, I'm so glad we have evolved past all of that stuff. Um, but, but one interesting thing that, that happens to me when I read historical fiction and when I really get into the minds and the lives of the people that live there is that a, a certain empathy um, uh, develops and and an empathy where not only um, an empathy toward the people that were wronged during this time, but also it it enables me to to be able to to just understand people a little better and and not that you uh, dismiss or excuse um, people's actions by any means, but you can. Uh, you can feel compassion uh, toward them. Did did this time period and um, dealing with this tragedy and then the the fallout after that did did it help you to see the past in a different light? Absolutely, and I think that's what historical fiction can do for us, among loads of other things, like bring women's voices to the forefront, make us understand people better, look. It is so easy to stand in the world of 2021 and judge a woman from 1838 for her actions and her choices. Just like some woman in the year 3021 will stand here and judge our actions with with a certain amount of haughtiness, thinking that they would have done differently than what we're doing. And I can be appalled by the choices while simultaneously trying my best to put myself in their shoes, in the seat of their heart, um, from behind their eyes, and look at the world with what they understood at that time, which we understand now in a completely different way. And so, yes, that's what historical fiction can do for us. But that doesn't mean we excuse anything or say, right. oh, you know, what did they know? Nothing like that. We get to say that's appalling, that is abhorrent, and simultaneously at the same time and both try to understand for the women, I'm talking about how they might have been trapped in their own ways in a certain way. Right. Absolutely. So, Patty, at the end of the book, when 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 someone's reading it and they close that back cover, what do you hope they're left with? You know, the, this is one of those books that that has kind of lingered with me. And uh, and 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 that's that's the sign of that, that a storyteller has done her job uh, is is when these characters just won't leave you alone at the end. Um, what do you hope people are left with? Oh, I always hate telling my readers what to get. I hope they get what they need or want. Sure. And yet, <laughs> <laughs> I I don't want to answer questions for anyone. 
but I hope that it allows people to ask the bigger questions for themselves. One of my favorite poets and philosophers is an English-Irish poet named David White, and he has this saying that the beautiful question can make or unmake a life. And sometimes I think I hope that my books have people asking those questions of themselves. Surviving Savannah will definitely leave you uh, different than when you came to the book. And I think that's probably one of the best um, uh, endorsements that you could get for a book. Um, I love it. I'm telling everyone about it. Uh, We're going to send everyone to pick up their copy of Surviving Savannah. There's going to be links to it in the show notes of this episode, whether you uh, like to read, you know, physical paper and hold it in your hand or on your Kindle or listen to the audio book. You can grab it. Uh, When you're hearing this episode, it will have the book will will be brand new and out uh, in the world where you can grab it. Uh, Patty, if people are just learning about you and want to dig into all the great stuff that you do, where can they find you online? They can find me on my website, which is pattycallahan.com. And there is loads of things for you to find there. There is a book club kit. There are maps. There is backstory. There are photos. Um, I'm very active on Instagram, and my Instagram is Patty C. Henry, P-A-T-T-I-C, as in Callahan, Henry. And I'm on Facebook as author Patty Callahan Henry, and I'm all the places that you would go and and look look for us online. Excellent. We'll put links to all those places in the show notes. Uh, Patty, this has been so much fun chatting. Thank you for taking time to come on the show. Oh, Hank, thank you for having me. This was really fun. I wish we were doing it face-to-face, but we'll be there again soon. Absolutely. I hope. Absolutely. Authors, if you're looking for a partner to help ensure that your book is the best it can possibly be, look no farther than Pico's House. Crystal and her staff make a conscious effort to be critical yet courteous. They also strive to make the business side of things run smoothly so that you can rest easy knowing that your manuscript is in capable hands. Whether you need beta reading, developmental editing, a manuscript critique, line editing, copy editing, or proofreading, Pico's House is the one-stop shop for you. Check them out today at picoshouse.com to get started. Dream Author by Sophie Hanna is an immersive 14-month coaching program for writers at any and every level of experience, and also for those of you who want to write and are just waiting for the right encouragement and guidance to get you started. Your writing dreams should make you happy. For so many of us, our dreams are not a source of happiness. Instead, they cause us stress, guilt, frustration, and even shame. Here's the great news. All of these feelings are natural and all writers experience them. The problem, though, is that when your writing dreams bring you more anxiety than joy, it affects your resolve and your productivity, and you end up not taking the action you need to take in order to propel your dreams in the right direction so that they can stand a strong chance of coming true. That's why Sophie created the Dream Author Coaching Program to teach anyone who is passionate about writing how to change the way they build, think about, and pursue their writing dreams in order to become their own most powerful ally and advocate for the rest of their writing life. And more great news. 
Once you've learned that skill, it lasts forever. Visit dreamauthorcoaching.com to get started today. The Bad Company Complete Series Omnibus, books one through seven. Humanity's greatest export, justice. Space is a dangerous place, even for the wary, especially for the unprepared. The aliens have no idea. Here comes the Bad Company. The Bad Company, book one, Colonel Terry Henry Walton takes his warriors into battle for a price in this first installment of The Bad Company. He believes in the moral high ground and is happy to get paid for his role in securing it. Set in the Cutharian Gambit universe, Terry, Char, and their people-humans, werewolves, were-tigers, and vampires form the core of the Bad Company's direct action branch, a private conflict solution enterprise. Join them as they fight their way across Tissakinan 4, where none of the warring parties were what they expected. The seven-book series Omnibus includes The Bad Company, Blockade, Price of Freedom, Liberation, Destroyer, Discovery, Overwhelming Force. Grab the complete Bad Company series by Craig Martell now. How to Be a Badass Witch by Michael Anderley. Virtutus Gloria Mercies. Translation, glory is the reward of valor. Fed up with playing the normal game, recent university graduate, ex-cum laude, ex-soccer star, ex-popular and mostly broke Cara Madonna changes her life when she decides to research how to be a witch and believes it. Cara didn't want to go back east and deal with her overbearing mom, so when university was done, she stayed behind in Los Angeles. Little did she realize how controlling moms can be from the other side of the country. Feeling a little desperate to make her own way, she buys a few books on business and one on a lark, How to Be a Badass Witch. That's when the trouble started. Find out just what trouble a young woman can get into when the magic just might be real. How to Be a Badass Witch by Michael Andrews. 